This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland is the first of a series of four titled Reconsidering Mindfulness. It was given at Cerro Gordo Temple in Santa Fe, New Mexico on February 9, 2012. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Happy Valentine's Day from Awakened Life. well, it's, it seems to me that over the last couple of years, something that's become apparent is that um, what the Western world intends to assimilate from the Dharma is mindfulness. Um, and so I wanted to begin tonight by asking you all, because it's so, if you, if you have any sort of contact with the larger Buddhist world, you know that mindfulness is the is, is the, the thing it has become. And um, I'm curious about when I say mindfulness, when we talk about mindfulness, what does that mean to you? What does it bring to mind? When eating chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> Just chocolate. Yeah. Anything else? Being present in this moment. Just to be with what is. Pop Buddhism. Pop Buddhism? Say more about what you mean by that. Heightened awareness. Mm. Yeah. Careful. Mm-hmm. Making a meditation out of everyday tasks. Sorry, was someone going to speak? Nope. So it seems pretty obvious why we would be attracted to this, why we would want to assimilate this. I mean, what situation wouldn't improve from the inclusion of the kinds of things that that you all have mentioned? Um, And then the other day I read something somewhere which said um, Buddhist meditation, which is also known as mindfulness. So meditation and mindfulness are now synonyms for each other. And I thought, well, that's interesting. (laughs) Maybe it it would be a good thing for us to spend a little bit of time being mindful about mindfulness and really see if that equation is is as absolute as it seems to be becoming. so if the, if the virtues of mindfulness are, are, are abundantly clear and beautiful and really important and a great gift of the Dharma to, um, to other people in other places, it's also true that something can be lost when something is taken out of context 
And mindfulness does exist in a context. It doesn't float free by itself. So I thought for the next couple of of times, um, we might look at tonight in particular the context out of which mindfulness has been drawn, sort of put it back in that context. And then once we've done that, next week to look at what does a mindfulness fully resting happily in its context look like? Is that any different than than, um, what the sort of growing consensus is becoming here? And when something is separated out from its context, there can be some pitfalls. And, And some of the pitfalls I see with what's happening with mindfulness are as follows. It seems to me that there, that's something we have to pay attention to is whether there's a way in which mindfulness free of, of everything else tends to reinforce the idea of a self, the idea of an observer, the idea of a doer. Are we, do we become hyper-aware of here I am being mindful or not being mindful? Here I am cutting the carrots mindfully. You know, here I am being present. Oh, here I am not being present. And, and when that becomes the only practice, is there the possibility that that would reinforce the sense of the self, you know, lining itself up, um, choosing to do the right things, choosing not to do other things, the, and that there is a sense of here am I acting in the world which is kind of over there. I'm being mindful of this world which starts here and goes out, right? Um, that's, so that's one thing I wonder about. And then the other thing is a kind of implicit assumption that we can bring everything into our conscious awareness and that the space of our conscious awareness is the place we ought to be working. That's the place of our practice. And what I wonder about that is, is that true? <laughs> is it true that we, A, can bring everything into our conscious awareness? Are there things that possibly, by their nature, are not susceptible to being, you know, put under the spotlight of our conscious awareness. And B, um, is that necessarily a good thing? Might it be important to rather attune ourselves, first of all, to those things we can't know? What does it mean to be mindful of what we can't and don't know? And we're going to talk some more about that next week because that's such a huge territory. And also, are there things that really do happen underground? Are there things that happen outside of our conscious awareness? And um, perhaps the movement is to embrace them to the extent that we can, and even if, we can't, if we're not by their nature aware of them, to honor and recognize that they're going on, that not everything is within our conscious control. Um, and then the third, the third thing I wonder about is whether it might tend sometimes to reinforce a sense of practice as an act of will. I am going to be conscious now. You know, I am going to be present now. I am going to be mindful now. Um, Rather than as a a kind of surrender to necessity. And I'm going to talk more about what I mean by that next week, particularly in bringing in the um, European philosopher Simone Weil, who, who said such beautiful things about attention 
and what she called attention, which is what we would call mindfulness. And she would she would say things like, um, um, "The more you pay attention, the more you attend, the fewer choices you have, because." things become blazingly apparent about what what there is to do what is going to happen next there aren't so there aren't so many acts of will there aren't so many choices there's more a kind of surrender to the necessity of what's happening um, so we'll talk some more about that and also um, in in honor of Valentine's Day her idea of attention as love that attention is a form of love we offer to the world um, so that's that's coming, and then right now, as I said, I want to put mindfulness back into its context because meditation is not just one thing. Meditation is a multiplicity of things, and um, it is a kind of fundamentalism to say that meditation is you know one particular thing. And actually, it, in in this multiplicity, there's there's more a sense. Of, of um, rather than imposing a particular practice on any situation, a sense of listening to a situation, listening to the question that's being asked, and seeing if the answer to the question or the response to the situation doesn't arise out of the situation itself or out of the question itself. And a kind of trust in that, again, a a non-imposition of will, but a surrender to what seems to actually be happening. And when we're doing that, when we're listening to see what is the situation asking for, what is the question calling for as a response, we're going to need a multiplicity of ways to respond. There isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all one to that. And, um, and again, that that um, requires so much trust in the life around us, in the fact of life, in the fact of embodiment, in the fact of being in this world, and trust in our own ability to listen and read and respond in good ways, or to listen and read and respond in ways that are not so skillful, but to know that, to, come to, to understand that and to learn from it. Okay. So, um, our, our um, practice, our koan way, sits on a three-legged stool of rustic manufacture, and um, sometimes it can feel like it's a bit wobbly, but um, actually it's as old as the world, and uh, just as reliable, if wobbly. Wobbly doesn't mean not reliable, <laughs> it just means reliable in a different way. Okay, so the three legs of this stool of koan practice are mindfulness, for sure, and concentration, and what we shorthand as inquiry, which doesn't really do it justice, but it's the whole constellation of ways of being and practices around koans that have to do with inquiry. They also have to do with creativity. They have to do with a, a kind of um, you know, creative engagement with the world. So concentration, mindfulness, and inquiry. Um, I'm going to concentrate on concentration, concentrate a little bit on concentration and mindfulness now, 
because they're like the inhale and the exhale. Concentration is a kind of inhale, and mindfulness is a kind of exhale. Um, another way to think about them is that the quality of consciousness, the quality of, of attention with concentration is like a laser light. And the quality of attention or, or um, consciousness with mindfulness is like a diffuse light. So with concentration, you've got this laser-like focus, usually initially a focus on something. Um, in, in a lot of, of Zen meditation, that would be on the breath. So you learn to focus with great concentration on the breath. At a certain point, usually, even the object of concentration falls away so that there's only a, this pure state of concentration. And it has this, this laser-like quality. It's a, it's a practice initially of exclusion. Um, we don't follow our thoughts and feelings, our moods and our reactions to things. We consciously set them aside. Um, in, in Zen, it's called cutting off the mind road. You know, you just, I'm not, it's the, I'm not going to go there practice, you know. And that can be tremendously important and powerful at, at times. So um, we learn to, um, to, to let everything else go, to not be distracted, to keep coming back to this quite deep and quite narrow practice, which, with any luck, um, the bottom falls out at some point and we find ourselves just in the vastness itself. Um, in contrast to that, Mindfulness is as though we've been um, standing on a stage with a spotlight, the spotlight of, of concentration, and somebody just put the house lights up, and suddenly we're aware of everybody else who's in the theater. That's mindfulness. That's the diffuse light of mindfulness, where our attention doesn't go down and in and then fall out of the bottom of that into emptiness, but actually goes out toward everything and everyone else around us so that we have this, we have a kind of horizontal lateral awareness of, of the world around us. So maybe you can, you can see why I say inhale and exhale. Inhale into that deep concentrated state, exhale into that awareness of, of everything around. Um, so roughly speaking, and this is, you know, this is too crude, but roughly speaking, uh, concentration tends toward the vastness. It tends toward emptiness. It tends toward giving us an experience of the, the vast, eternal, unchanging nature of things. And mindfulness tends toward the embodied world. It tends toward showing us um, the, the, um, the nature of, of stuff and matter and things, the forms that things take, the activities of things, the way the world moves and changes. So it's um, the aspect of things that is impermanent, transitory, changing all the time. And then um, inquiry, which we'll, we'll return to this later, inquiry or the koan way is about um, really how to engage both of those things, to engage that the aspect of the vastness and the aspect of embodiedness and how to make a life out of that. It's not just enough to sit on the cushion and experience those things. How do we make a life 
from that, and that's that that's that third leg of the stool. So when when we're doing a concentration practice, when concentration seems to be the thing that that um, the situation is asking for, the or the question is calling from us, um, we tend to see this um, vast empty. Uh, aspect of everything, where everything co-arises, everything comes into existence together equally. Um, and for for those of you who've been uh, hanging around this winter, that might have an echo of what we've been calling the wisdom of equality, that ability to see that everything co-arises in absolute equality with everything else. Um, so we experience, we don't just read about or think about or believe in, but through concentration practice we actually experience that spaciousness of everything, that equality of everything, um, the radiance of everything and the thusness of the whole universe just as it is. And that experience is not only uh, heartening, <laughs> And, um, and supporting and beautiful, uh, awe-inspiring and all of that, it's also truer. When we include that experience, we're getting closer to the way things actually are. And I want to be really clear that I'm not saying that, that that's truer than our experience of embodied life. It's just another aspect like embodied life is an aspect. But it's, we have to include it. We have to really experience that for ourselves. Um, and that's the key to concentration practice. It allows us to know it for ourselves, to feel it for ourselves, to be changed by it through the experience of it. Which part? Um, concentration and that's the key. Just the last few things. That, uh, what is it about concentration as opposed to With the, As opposed to embodiment. Yeah. Okay. So um, everything is embodied. Everything is particular. Everything is exactly what it is in the way that it is. And simultaneously, um, everything is empty, <laughs> eternal, unchanging. You know, so it's 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 moving and changing all the time in one aspect of itself, and another aspect of itself, it's not changing at all. It, you know, each moment is perfect, each moment is eternal. So it's sort of moment after moment after moment after moment of um, of perfect eternity appearing before us. And the thing about a concentration practice is. Um, you don't have to listen to me say that. You know that. You've, you experience that for yourself. And that's a tremendous gift to actually <clears throat> sit in that um, perfect um, presence of eternity like that. Is that, is that responding? Okay. Um, so I mentioned that that, that a common um, object of concentration is the breath. And when we spend a lot of time focusing on our breath, when we really get intimate with that, when we follow the breath down through the bottom of everything 
to that place where it's um, roaring with stillness and, um, and very spacious. Um, then that breath can run like a silver thread through our lives all the time. And wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can touch that silver thread of the breath because we've experienced what it is attached to through concentration practice. We've followed it all the way down to the bottom of things. Um, And it's not just a matter of experiencing that silver thread through our own lives. We know that it's connected to infinity. We know that that silver thread has been running since before the beginning of time and will run long after that. And so every time we touch it, we're touching that. We're touching that silver thread that runs through eternity and that is always available to us. Anytime, anywhere, no matter what's happening, no matter how um, difficult or painful, when we return to the breath, when we return to that thread, we are connected to that um, immovably. Uh, whether we're full of joy or sorrow, even when we're dying, we are connected to that immovably. Okay, so that sounds pretty nice. (laughs) And as with mindfulness, if we concentrate on concentration to the exclusion of everything else, it, it also has a danger, and its danger is the territory of what we've come to call the private Buddha, you know, the, the, the withdrawal from the world, the sitting only for our own awakening, that sense of moving away from that which is difficult and challenging toward that really beautiful place where everything is eternal and shining and there are no problems. Um, but that's a withdrawal into the world of the private Buddha and to use the language of the koan we're looking at in the koan salon, it has no power for the path. There's nothing that can happen with that. That is static and unchanging. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the potential difficulty with concentration and of course mindfulness is the perfect antidote to that because from that movement down and into the world of the private Buddha we're then pushed right back out into the world of, of the other um, the world of, of um, embodied others the particularities of things the changing nature of things and we are required to come into relationship with them, which is a good thing. Um, the other thing, the other thing that, that can be a difficulty with that move into the territory of the private Buddha is we don't just withdraw from the messiness of the world, outs- quote, outside, unquote, ourselves. Um, we don't with- just withdraw from the difficulties and challenges of, of life around us. We also have to withdraw from um, the same things in ourselves. If concentration is a, is a practice of exclusion, if it's the practice of, I'm not going to go there, what's happening to all that stuff where you're not going? You know, It doesn't disappear. Because we don't come into relationship with our thoughts and feelings and moods and experiences and karma and all of that, because we, don't, we choose not to come into relationship with it doesn't mean it goes away. It's still acting on us. It's still affecting us. It's still there. It's just that we're not dealing with that anymore. 
And that's the other danger of that kind of concentration practice, that um, by excluding, we do not annihilate. We just let it act in the dark. We let it act without having any kind of relationship to it, without coming into any kind of engagement with it. And we lose two things. We lose both the power of what is there, the power of our own thoughts, feelings, moods, karma, you know, all the stuff that resides there that could be really juicy and important and essential to us. Um, We lose that power and we also lose the ability to transform it. If we're not going there, we can't transform it. There's nothing we can do about it. It's just going to sit there and act on us in its own um, untransformed way. Okay, so when we bring in both mindfulness and concentration together, if we have both the inhale and the, inha- and the exhale, the virtue of concentration is that we don't have to get caught up and obsessed with our emotions and our moods on the one hand, but we also don't have to pretend they don't exist on the other hand. So we can... Um, turn our mindfulness inward. It's not just something we extend into the world. It's something we can turn inward on ourselves and come to understand the the vast interior spaces um, that all of us carry in us and and all of the the angels and the capering vultures that live inside of there. And... um, and, and come into some kind of relationship with them which allows them to have power for the path. It allows us to make use of them. It allows us to live them fully rather than denying them. Okay, so if that's concentration practice, then mindfulness practice is um, this exhale. It's the, the experience of the differences and the particularities of each thing. Really seeing everything else as real. Um, another thing that Simone Weil talked a lot about is the claims that others make on us simply by the fact of their existence. And that it's our moral obligation to try to understand what those claims are. And we understand those claims when we really get that it's real out there. It's as real as as ourselves. And that's what mindfulness does. It gives us an experience of the particularities, the differences. So in contrast to the wisdom of equality that... um, we explore with concentration practice, through mindfulness we explore the wisdom of differentiation. We explore the the beautiful, tangled, infinitely complex, exasperating thusness of everything that exists along with us. One of the results of doing that is that Um, our allegiance begins to shift from the individual narrative we all run all the time um, from that 
individual narrative, which is kind of bounded by skull and skin, to this um, sense of the vastness of life itself, the complexity of it, all the narratives going on. You know, that that, um, one of the koans talks about every time we speak, it sort of scrolls, fall from our mouths, which is a wonderful image, you know, that that out of our feet run these scrolls of the things that we do. And um, with the wisdom of differentiation, with mindfulness, we begin to see the scrolls falling out of everything's mouth, the scrolls running out of everything's toes, you know, the sense of how much there is that's going on, how real it is, that it's just as real as as what's happening with us, and that it um, it has a claim on us. Um, and we begin to see that reality doesn't happen in here or in here. Reality happens out here in the space between us. Reality happens in what we make together. And that that is, um, is equally true, that we, we are in reality. It's all around us. And it is the lines of connection among all of us and among us and, and all other things. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll stop soon, <laughs> um, but just just add one other thing that with the third leg of the stool, with with inquiry, artistry, or whatever we want to call it, what we're doing is is we're taking something that can often be a tension. There can often be a tension between these two ways of experiencing things that I'm talking about. How can it be that stuff is so, you know, hard and unmoving, and how can it also be completely empty? And how often in our lives, one or the other of those aspects will be in the foreground and the other will fall into the background. And that we can often experience trying to hold those two realities simultaneously as a kind of tension. And what inquiry does is it says um, that tension is a creative tension. That's not a problem. The solution is not to choose one or the other. The solution is to hold them in tension and to see what happens when you do. When you don't let either one drop, but you let them act on each other, what is the life that gets made in the doing of that? How do we learn to um, not just live with the tension, but navigate between these these different the inhale and the exhale these different ways of experiencing the world. Um, how do we notice when we're tilting one way or another, and when we when it would be good to bring in or tilt the other way, you know, or bring in the other. Um, and in doing that, we can find a way to to. Um, to take the wisdom of equality and the wisdom of differentiation, that sense of the vastness holding us up that we receive in concentration practice, and the sense of a connection to the complicated, chaotic, impossibly beautiful embodied world, how can we um, find a way to live fully with those two things, completely present? or as present as is possible in any moment? How are things simultaneously infinite and very particular? And how do we live exactly at that intersection where each moment, each activity, each encounter 
each engagement. It happens at the intersection of what is infinitely large and what is completely particular and um, irreproducible. Okay? So that's a beginning of trying to put mindfulness back in a context, back in a larger context. And, um, and we'll keep going. Thank you all very much. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.